This episode of The Bag Drop, Untold Stories in Golf, is brought to you by Half Day. If you played in the Stinger, our annual member guest, you may remember the Half Day CBD Closest to the Pin Hickory Challenge. Now, through the link in our show notes, you can visit their full line of hemp-derived CBD products, and with the use of the promo code NEWCLUB15, you'll receive an additional 15% off your first order. I'll be back a little later in the show to share my personal experiences with Half Day. And if you're curious about the benefits of CBD for yourself, I encourage you guys to check them out. PJ Malik, it's been a while, my friend. Welcome back to the bag drop. It's been a while. Thanks so much. I think the last time I was on was when you gave me the uh, honorary membership. So that was that was even before we knew that COVID was a thing, I think, or maybe right at the beginning of it. Well, you were, uh, it was, and a lot has changed since that time. You, you were doing good work, uh, you know, getting new clubs message out there to uh, the world, but then um, kind of something crazy happened as it relates to the USGA. Uh, you know, you being a statistician and researcher for Fox Sports during these national championships, um, and no more. We're, we're going into the open, and Fox isn't on the contract. So, are you uh, able to t- tell us a little bit about that, or just from your perspective? You know, that I'm sure that's rough. I'm sure that stinks for a lot of people that were working hard on these. But, but how did it impact you? And um, yeah, how's it been? Yeah, I mean, I think like, you know, 99% of everybody on the broadcast, I mean, I had no idea it was coming. I, I learned like everybody else in the public uh, that day in July, and I was pretty shocked. I mean, I, I knew that, you know, going to Wingfoot was a big, big thing for us this year. Our executive producer, Mark Loomis, uh, his father was a member of Wingfoot. He grew up in about 20 minutes away from the golf club, learned how to play golf there, uh, worked the U.S. Open broadcast in 1984 when Fuzzy Zeller won there as a runner for ABC. Um, you know, so going there in 2020 to be the executive producer for Fox USGA and to, you know, really run the tournament and for television, uh, you know, I, it's a heartbreaker for him, I'm sure. I haven't talked to him, but I, it, that was the first thing that went through my mind was I just felt bad for him that he couldn't. Uh, he's a member there too. I don't know if I said that currently a member, uh, he's been a member there for his entire life. So for him to not be able to do the broadcast at his home course, uh, that, you know, that really sucks, honestly. And that was the first thing, the first person who I thought of when I heard that Fox lost the USGA rights, man. Yeah. That probably it's a whole nother level. Your, your home course, your, your day job all colliding at once. And exactly. your national open. I mean, everything, I think that was, that was what was going to be so great about it. I think we had some old photos of him when he was a kid uh, during the massacre of Wingfoot in 74, when Hale Irwin won, he was a sign carrier. And then to kind of see the progression as the term has kept going back and he was working, working his way up in the, uh, in the TV business. And then now to be able to do it, you know, I think that that just really sucks that we're not going to be able to to cover it for them, really. Now, what what about you? I, I don't know, you know, if they had you on retainer or whatever, but did you start getting calls from NBC Sports? I mean, they're probably not putting many people in the booth, you know, behind uh, anchors right now with uh, COVID and all. But 
did, did you, how you been keeping busy, man? Are you still, you know, Google searching and doing your history lessons on? <laughs> yeah. On I mean, Matt, I mean, you know, the, the, uh, the offers just were flooding in, honestly. I mean, it was pretty, it was pretty crazy. I mean, my, I had to hire an agent. I mean, it was, it was pretty overwhelming. I didn't know, you know, how to control it, but, uh, no, uh, that's no, no, that's no cards in the business. Everybody heard everyone knows. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, my penmanship from the fourth grade, I think Mrs. Carrier would be extremely proud of me. Um, No, I ended up taking a, you know, real daytime job in Cleveland. I'm working at this product solution company in Solon, Ohio right now. Um, just like an eight to four grind, I guess, like everybody else. So it feels a little weird not being able to play golf every day and uh, watching golf every day and taking notes on golf every day. So it's a, wow. definitely a different pace, but uh, it's, it's been good so far. It's only been about two months, so I'm still getting used to it, but uh, you know, hopefully um, you know, I can find something, you know, part-time or full-time in the golf industry soon. So, well, let me uh, welcome you to the real world and uh you thought new club was cool uh when you were working in golf just wait until now you're uh now this this membership's actually going to come in handy where you uh are just dying to to get out and actually play golf um it it changes your relationship with the game believe me but uh but it's all good that's that's great man well i think what we want to do today is is put your your brain to uh to good use so hopefully you know you're your now eight to five grind hasn't uh, deteriorated any of the knowledge you have around the game of golf. Um, because we got a, we got an open coming up and a very, very, uh, exciting one at Wingfoot. And, um, I thought it'd just be fun to have you back on and run through like what, what we got, what we got ahead. So I, I wanted to maybe start with 2020 looking at the tournament. Um, and then, I we just I think we both connected earlier in the week and we had so much fun revisiting uh, 2006 that I also want to talk about 2006 a little bit and the the last massacre at Wingfoot or uh, <laughs> uh, the last one that that um, you know Jeff Ogilvie walked away with uh, and we can kind of share some notes on that if that's cool with you. Yeah, great. I mean, I think we had so much fun doing the the history stuff for the Masters in the spring for the 2011 Masters and the. Uh, the 98 masters that I think we, you know, we couldn't really skip over the two going back to Wingfoot. We couldn't really skip over 2006 and what happened there. Absolutely. Well, we'll get to it, but uh, kick us off with just your preview for 2020. Like what are you kind of looking at? What are you excited to see for this open returning to Wingfoot? I think we're going to see a traditional U S open. Finally, I think we're going to see scores, you know, well over par. I think John Rahm put it best a couple of days ago. He said that if you shoot even next week at Wingfoot, you're going to win by a lot. And I couldn't agree more with him. Every everything that I'm hearing coming out of New York, um, I had a pretty good friend who's in the TV business who played up there a couple of weeks ago and said it's the hardest golf course he's ever played. So I think they, if the weather stays away. Uh, and they're able to, you know, kind of keep the course the way that they have been able to keep it up the last couple of weeks, last couple of months. Um, the USGA can just get out of the way and just kind of let Wingfoot do its thing and, and kind of beat these guys up. And I think that's what, you know, everybody wants. I think everybody wants to see an old style U.S. Open. Um, and I think, you know, 
that's what Wingfoot's going to give us. I thought I saw Rom said that, and I go, oh wow, that's and that's a guy that's playing really good right now. Um, I also saw JT said he, he also had similar comments when he went with Tiger and has practice round, but he said it's uh, you know one of the most difficult courses he's ever played. I think it was his first time playing it. Yeah, but he also said it's like his favorite course that he just thinks it's old school design and. Um, I, I, the comment I heard you say was the definition is just so defined. And I thought that was a funny thing to say because it doesn't really like make a sense, double but, positive. Yeah. 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 But, but I get what, but I kind of get what he's saying. <laughs> like when you look at the, the holes out there, it definitely just pops with definition on, you know, uh, especially around the greens, but um, yeah. What, uh, what, what, so you're thinking well over par is our winner. If you had to put a number on it, what would you, uh, what would you say? Well, Jeff Ogilvy in 2006 won a five over, and I wouldn't be surprised if something around there uh, is what we get, um, especially kind of in the fall, you know, upstate New York. I mean, it can get firm and fast. It can get a little chilly uh, and, you know, it can get a little windy and the course can dry out. And, you know, I I honestly think that, you know, three, four, five, six over kind of anywhere in there. Um, if you gave, I think if you gave, Justin Thomas right now, if he said, hey, would you take three over and not even play next week? I think he'd take it. Man, yeah. Yeah, that's that's different for these guys. That is not the usual. I think the uh, – so he, the, the interview I saw with him was on CNBC, like their power lunch. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's like a bunch of non-golfers. But one of the guys on this panel was uh, – his name was Surratt, and he's a member at Wingfoot, and he was – asking him about the differences between uh it was such a shot at the pga tour i could tell because he said what's the difference between the tpc courses you play in Wingfoot?" <laughs> and, uh, and and justin says well uh you know my practice round i haven't had that many five or six irons like i'm not expecting to have that at east lake or whatever course he was comparing <laughs> to uh he's like i just had a lot of mid and long irons and I mean, that's really kind of how you test these guys, right? Is get different clubs in their hand, make a premium on hitting fairways, um, and then don't make the up and downs. Like I, I, I've, I've heard, and I got some insight from a couple other members too that I, I can share, but um, I, I just think there's, there's greens where, you know, depending on the pin, there's just no place to, to miss versus. Well, even if you hit the green, you're, you're still not, it's almost better to miss the green than to hit it because you're going to be put in spots where you just cannot two putt. I mean, it's almost like you're better off, you're better off hitting it in the front left bunker because you have an easier bunker shot than you do from 30 feet for birdie. I mean, that's what's so crazy. And I, I think only, really the only other course I can think of that relates to that is Oakmont. Yeah. Those are really the only two courses I can think of that where you're almost better off not <laughs> missing the green than hitting it. And we, we haven't had an over some spots. Is that the last? Well, I guess what, what's the last over par open winner? I want to say 2007 on Hill Cabrera. Uh, off the top of my head, I feel like Justin Rose was over par at Marion in 2013. Um, but that's doing it without looking at anything. Uh, what about, but, what about Shinnecock? Was that, that might have Shinnecock been. Brooks was at even, I believe he might've been one over. Actually. I think you're right. I think he won at one over. So, I mean, it's, and it's different too, because, you know, last year, I mean, Gary Woodland won a 13 under, I mean, and it's no knock on Pebble beach because it's a great golf course. And it's, it's a course that obviously the USGA will go back to for years, 
and it's it's really our St. Andrews in the United States, and uh, and I love Pebble. I mean, going out there last year for the first time it was unbelievable. But um, you know, it's not it just, out there. It just depends on the weather that you get. And you know, last year they just didn't have the dried out, windy conditions that they were hoping for. They it was more dewy, and it was kind of the conditions that you saw this year at San Francisco for the PGA Championship. And um, I think, you know, this year's U.S. Open, it's going to be completely different. It's going to be old school. Uh, like you said, you're going to have to hit fairways and greens. And, uh, you know, like Curtis Strange once said to me, he said, I want my my U.S. Opens hitting fairways and hitting greens. And he's like, that's, that's the way that, you know, the old U.S. Opens were played. And I think that's that's what we're going to see next week at, uh, at Wingfoot. You mentioned um, a couple great golf courses there, uh, Oakmont. Um, you mentioned Pebble. Uh, the USGA announced that Pinehurst is going to be their, I don't know, golf clubhouse south uh, for the USGA, kind of a second headquarters, and that they're going to you know, make two a permanent part of their rota that they're announcing. Mm-hmm. Um, I was curious, what's your take on that? We just would be in a – kind of a history buff and, and following all this stuff. Do you think it's, do you like that they're moving more towards the, the UK or the RNA uh, Rota? You know, we all know the, the Rota for uh, open championships kind of stays mostly the same. Are you, are you a uh, pro in favor of the USGA doing the same thing? I like it. I think it's great. I think, first of all, just to talk about Piners really quickly, it's one of my favorite places in the world. Uh, I have a love-hate relationship with it because I love going there. I love the town. I love how it's just all golf. I hate it because I've never played well there ever in my entire life, the four or five times that I've gone. But uh, that's the golf courses are spectacular, and uh, it's just a great place to spend a couple days at and, and hang out and play some good golf. Um, but I, I think you're right. I think I love the fact that the USGA, you know, is kind of leaning towards what the RNA does in a rota um i think that takes out a lot of like the new golf courses that you've seen them try to test out uh the aaron hills chambers bay i think one of the reasons why they may have gone to those was to see if they would go back in the future obviously and i think that they quickly got their answers once the once the tournament started those weeks um and that's no knock against those golf courses it was just you know the way that the guys were able to you know handle the courses pretty well and just the elements and I think the way that, you know, how they both courses were kind of in the middle of nowhere, I think they felt like they'd rather go back to places that they, you know, know and are comfortable with. And um, a lot more goes into running a golf tournament than just, you know, how the golf course is going to be set up that week. I mean, you have to think about transportation, how we're going to get, you know, everybody in TV, all the fans, where's everybody going to park? It's just, you know, how are we going to deal with the local cops and the local government? Um, you know, where are people going to stay at night? I mean, just every, there's a million different things. And I think that, you know, what the RNA does so well is that they just go back, you know, every four or five, six years to the same golf courses, the same towns, and they know what to expect. And, you know, if you don't like it, then you don't have to come. That's kind of their attitude. And I think that the USGA, you know, would be smart and kind of following their footsteps a little bit and go back to these, you know, spectacular golf courses these original usga courses that you know everybody loves to see and you know has heard about but perhaps hasn't you know seen on television in a while yeah yeah i i i personally i haven't thought about it a whole lot because i just saw it this afternoon honestly that it was 
happening. Um, but I, I love it in the fact that it's a nod to golf history. And I think it's cool that like, you know, wing foot being more frequent that say uh, it's the same green that Bobby Jones, you know, got his uh, exactly. US open on. It's the same. It's those, cause, cause that's what we have with the, the British open. And I think it also like, adds a little bit more to the timelessness of the game you know the con- the connection of it that it, right. even though it, it does evolve and look very different these are the same grounds of the game you know it's it's still uh the continuity is there and, and i think that's really cool and I, i'm glad you know we're taking that from the the uk model the rota uh that the rna uses um i do think the usga this is definitely more for them i think i think they want to have like you know, that, that grand old uh, clubhouse behind the 18th green of St. Andrews, you know, they, they want to be the RNA. They, they think they're, they, in a lot of ways are probably better than the RNA. And, and I just, I feel like it's a lot for that. But um, the, the one thing I do wish about the road of courses and it's just nature of golf in the United States, but uh, you know, it does kind of stink. You, you can, as, as an American or any golfer, you can go play the road of courses. You know, you can jump on a plane and, and go play them over in the UK and get on pretty much everything except your field. Um, mm. And even that you can get on. It's just a little bit more difficult. Uh, all, this Rota, you know, I know Pinehurst is going to be there. Pebble. I, I, I guess they're conscious of that, but it, it does think that like the best of the best, you know, your Oakmonts, your Wingfoots and your Shinnecocks, that they're not going to be on uh, accessible, right? You can't really have right. that bucket. Marion. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I, th- I think that's the only part that, that that's what Aaron Hills and Chambers Bay was bringing to it. I think in a way is that you get to go play where, you know, you watch the open be one, but I don't know. I mean, pros and cons. I agree. Yeah. I mean, exactly. Like at Aaron Hills, I think that, that next Monday, you know, Brooks, Brooks wins the U S open on Sunday. The next Monday there were, you know, 15 handicappers playing the same course that Brooks, Kepka just shot 17 under on and won the U.S. Open. I mean, that's, right. you know, that that only happens, like you said, at the, you know, over in the U.K. with the British Open. So I, th- I think that definitely, you know, is tough to swallow, I guess, because golf is just so much more accessible over the pond. But I, I think that's also another conversation for another day, too. Yeah. yeah. Well, <laughs> it, it's, it's true. So t- back to today, a little side, little side conversation there, but back to today. We could talk for three hours about that. I know. I know. I just saw it and I just, I felt like I need to ask, but so I, I want to share this cause I thought this was really cool. I, I called a, a couple members at Wingfoot um, to just ask them what they're looking forward to. Um, all of them responded with something that uh, I thought was, was, interesting enough to share. So I guess the superintendent at Wingfoot is like a next level kind of superintendent. Like he is living and breathing this thing to a degree that to me doesn't sound healthy, but like, <laughs> you know, obsessive. He, he is obsessing over every detail of this golf course. And, and I think any good super will do that. Right. But, um, he, he, he's just, he sounds like just a, a treasure. Like everybody loves him. You, you know how at most clubs, there's always like a contingent that's kind of like upset with the super or you right. know, wants to see a change or, or whatever. I guess, you know, this guy is just beloved for his work ethic, for everything that he puts into it. But, you know, they, they were just telling me that he's been walking the course every single morning um, by himself, usually just looking for anything and, and everything that can be touched up. 
like he he's like blades of grass, you know, bunker edges. He's out there just monitoring the conditions of the rough. All of them said like he, he is getting so specific on areas of the rough that um, he just wants it to be absolutely. I think I mean they had it perfect in June, and now some some time somehow. He was able to carry that through all the way to September. Like they, they've just said, and they had member play, you know, they, they were, they've been shut down for, I don't know, the, the normal six weeks or whatever, but um, they just said like, he's the nice, everyone says he's the nicest guy. He's so happy about his work too. You know, like he's just, this is what he loves to do. And he's just making sure that it is. And, 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 and I'm saying this because it kind of caught me off guard. Cause like the other, and you would probably know better than I, being so close to the telecast that the USGA just kind of comes in and takes over. But it really sounds to me that, um, the, Steve, I think it's Steve Rabideau is his name, the superintendent. Um, Steve Rabideau is just like owning the whole thing. That's awesome. I mean, that's, that's pretty cool to hear. And I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure, you know, the Wingfoot membership and, and Steve and they've obviously had, have had, you know, long, lengthy conversations with the USGA. And, you know, I'm sure that, you know, the USGA probably said, hey, you know, especially during, you know, these times and the fact that they changed the tournament date from June to September. And, you know, they're probably, the USGA has, you know, people that obviously live up there for, you know, they'll stay there for two years. They've probably had, you know, representatives from the USGA have lived in New York for two years since they, you know, knew that the open was going to come to Wingfoot and just to kind of prepare the golf course. So they know, they've known for a long time how they're going to set up the course. And I don't think it's something that, you know, Mike Davis just comes in and decides, you know, three days before the tournament, okay, this is where we're going to put the pins and we're going to, you know, try to grow the, length of the rough, you know, up this much in 48 hours or, you know, make the greens this kind of speed or whatever, whatever you want to talk about. I mean, they, they have a plan and they know, you know, how to execute their plan. And, and I'm sure that, uh, you know, they've, they're in, you know, agreement with each other and, and, you know, hopefully that, uh, you know, with everything with the weather and, you know, I hope that they can, produce a, a great open and I really think they will. I mean, I have no reason to think they won't, so we'll see, but I, that's pretty cool that, you know, he's been that into it the last couple of weeks and, and really, or this summer really. And to, you know, he's kind of treating this as his, you know, his big break. It's pretty fun. Yeah. Yeah. Well, before we get to your, your picks, um, I, there's one other of those members did share just some things that I thought were interesting. So I'll, I'll just, run through those quickly you know he he was uh this this particular member's i'll remove anonymity here he's fine uh john williams uh he's been on this podcast before member of new club actually current grad student at uh the university of st andrews um right there in the heart of the home of golf so uh shout out to john but he 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 grew up caddy in there he grew up a member um you know he says the the first four holes set the tone you hear that all the time uh, but anybody that can get through number three, which is that 250 yard par three at even par is, is just huge, uh, huge. Keep an eye on them basically is what he was saying. Um, he, uh, he said it like, like, uh, I commented same thing about the super keeping the rough, uh, where it's been since June, he, he's been able to keep it as thick, uh, and, and maybe more so in some areas. 
Um, he said to watch the par four six, which uh, will be interesting because it's drivable, but super narrow. And um, you do not want to miss right. I think there's water long left. There's a creek long left, but right is just dead, according to John. Um, he said 10 is going to be brutal uh, because it was the new tee box. It's playing about 220 and maybe the, t- uh, the toughest up and down on the course, no matter where you miss it. So that was one of those greens I mentioned that he said there's really no good place to miss. And even if you do make the green, there's, you know, bunch of ridges to putt over and um did the bunkers are just crazy deep uh and then what else did he say oh 17 uh their new tee box way back and and so that's playing like over 500 yard par four that's going to be intense and then uh a lot of the changes he just loves you know gil han's res- uh, restoration with all the greens being bigger and um he just liked to uh a more of a, a focus on guys with short game because of some of the, you know, false fronts and the severe slopes and the deep bunkers and just guys who, who can scramble because it's going to be necessary, you know, and making par putts is going to be just a premium. Um, and so, uh, so yeah. Oh, he also said, I forgot. He said, he goes, you will see people putting off greens uh, this week, which I was like, yes, let's go. You know, that's what, <laughs> <laughs> so we that's, uh, that's the rest of us getting to see the pros do that. But yeah, I, I thought his insight w- were interesting. So thanks, John, for sharing that. Yeah, that's very cool. I mean, it's cool to hear somebody who's, you know, played there for so long. And obviously, like you said, he grew up there as a member and, and uh, still plays there all the time. So it's pretty fun to see somebody who, somebody like that, who, you know, knows the course so well and plays it day in and day out. They, they understand how hard it is. Uh, I don't know if I'd want to <laughs> be a member there and get beaten up by the course every day like that. But, hey, I mean, some people love, you know, the fact that they can go play a championship golf course like that. And, you know, it's cool to hear some insight and things that we should expect next week. Yeah, I'll say this. The the three members I talked to are all single digit and um, they travel well. They're handicaps. They're, they're really good golfers. So, yeah, that's um, – Let's get to your picks, man. Who you like? Have you been looking at stats? You know who you want to go with? Uh, my pick, honestly, next week. Um, and I'm a big DJ fan. I think that he's playing some of the best golf of his life. I think he's uh, in a good state of mind. And obviously, you know, he just won $15 million last week. So that doesn't hurt. I don't think he's, I don't think he was worried about money anyway, but I think now he's, he's pretty comfortable. But, um, I think Justin Thomas is going to win the U.S. Open. Uh, that's my pick for next week. I think that he's he, sec- he finished second in the FedEx Cup uh, for 2020. Um, I'm not basing that off of <laughs> for my pick. I just felt like I should say that. But uh, I think that JT, I don't know. I just like the fact that he, you know, he hits it relatively straight off the tee. He's a great iron player. He's got an extremely underrated short game. I mean, the guy can really – chip and putt and I think next week I think those two things his his iron game and his short game is gonna he's gonna have to rely pretty heavily on those two parts of his game and I think um you know if he's able to find some fairways and able to you know birdie the two par fives out there uh, I think he's gonna be tough to beat I really do I think he's in a good frame of mind I think he's been playing well uh he's matured a lot and 
yeah, I think it, I think it's his time to kind of break through. I mean, the guy's got so much talent. He's going to win more than one major. And, and I believe that with Dustin Johnson, too. I mean, I think that you know, those two guys that we're talking about right now, JT and DJ, I, I'd be shocked if uh, both of them finish with less than three majors in their career. I mean, they're, they're that kind of talented. And, um, and especially DJ, I mean, it looks like he's going to have a 40-win career the pace that he's on right now. And, um, but I think that Justin Thomas, I just think I like that he's flying kind of under the radar a little bit. I mean, I know that, you know, he's been playing well, people are talking about him, but everybody's so caught up in DJ and John Rahm that I feel like Justin can kind of fly under the radar and kind of come into Wingfoot, just kind of do his own thing, prepare correctly. And I think he's going to be tough to beat. I really do. I like it. I think, uh, he just feels due for a big one too. Um, I'm going to go with John Rahm. That'll be my pick. Uh, it, but I mean, watch term- DJ, watch DJ will win by eight <laughs> yeah, next week. Yeah. yeah DJ just, just <laughs> down it. Um, I'm going to go with John Rahm because of two weeks. First being the Memorial in Columbus and la- the, the other being in Chicago at Olympia fields. And just the way that he played, on what I think is the probably the two most comparable to what they're going to face at Wingfoot, um, mm. at least this year, at least this year, just with it being firm at both those. I know it's not, who knows? It's not supposed to be super firm. They want it to be, obviously the USJ wants it to be firm, but um, I think there's going to be more rain coming, uh, but it, but it looks good. I, I just think, I don't know. He just seems like uh, he, he's going to, can he manage the emotions? Yeah, I know that's what everyone talks about is <laughs> His fiery <laughs> demeanor, but I like his short game. I think it's like you look at, and, and this will be a transition. Oh, we got to get sleepers too. You got to give me a sleeper um, pick before we transition to 2006 and talk more about old Philly Mick. But uh, uh, I think if you look at, you know, Jeff Ogilvy's win, then it was, it was up and downs and we'll talk about that. But I, I feel like I saw Rom have some just unbelievable open, up and downs watching a lot of Olympia fields and under those conditions, it's like, I think that's what's going to win. So that's why he's my pick. Okay. So, How about your – so who's your, who's your dark horse or who's somebody that you feel like is going to come out of nowhere? I mean, because there's no sexual qualifying, obviously, but yeah. somebody random. Yeah, I meant to do – take more time and do more research to find a name that nobody knows. and Because and, another guy I want to talk about in 2006 is Mr – Oh my God. I almost forgot his name. Kenneth Ferry. <laughs> All right. So I was thinking like, who's this year's Kenneth Ferry. And I was thinking I, the same thing. <laughs> I couldn't really find anybody, man. I just don't think like to play Wingfoot as an unknown and without the sexual qualifying, you don't really have it, I guess. But um, no, I'm going to like, I'll go with some who will surprise us. I think maybe not to win, but I'm going to go with Steve Stricker for a top 10 plus 50,000. And he's another guy that was on the leaderboard in 2006. And the guy can putt, the guy can ship. He manages it around. He hits it fairly straight. I have no idea what kind of shape his game's in. I just know he's in the field. So he is my really dark horse. Um, and I want to give you one more. So Joaquin Neiman, I think his finish at Olympia Fields also put him on my radar for Wingfoot. I think uh he's he's smoking the golf ball right now and and he's got a really uh clever short game with um putting that's been improved his putting's gotten a lot better so 
he, he that's that's my real uh, uh sleeper pick if you will because he's like plus 1250 or something crazy but um but yeah what's 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 yours what are you looking at uh so like my crazy dark horse is jim herman i mean obviously you know he's he's a winner on the tour this year but his only top 25 <laughs> is his victory so <laughs> that's yeah I think, uh you know who knows i mean you know i guess you never know i don't know his odds i haven't looked but uh be pretty pretty fun i think he could maybe sneak in the top 20 maybe pull out a, a top 20 uh in the u.s open that'd be pretty impressive um i guess maybe my not crazy dark horse, more somebody in the middle of the pack. I think Martin Keimer, I mean, he's been playing well the last two weeks in, in Europe. Uh, really should have won the last two weeks back-to-back. Uh, obviously, a past champion, he won in 2014 at Pinehurst. Um, dominated the field by eight shots there. Uh, I think he's he's somebody that we saw him play great the first round of the PGA Championship in San Francisco this year. He shot four under, ended up missing cut, but uh, – yeah, I like that. I mean, Martin Keimer has done it before where he just kind of shows up and um, that's out of nowhere. Out of nowhere. After years off. <laughs> Beautiful. Well, all right, let's dive into 2006 and relive that. I think we got a great uh, U.S. Open to look forward to uh, for 2020. So everybody enjoy. But uh if you're also looking at ways to prep for this, um, I can't recommend enough going to YouTube and watching the 2006 uh, Sunday. Uh, it's really just the back nine. They, they didn't give us a whole lot of um, the front nine from the Sunday uh, of 2006, but it's, uh, it's historic for a variety of reasons. I know we're going to touch on that. Um, before we do, got to give a quick shout out to our new sponsor of the podcast. Um, you haven't been on since we've had sponsors, but I was going to say we have a sponsor. Are we doing a, a sponsor plug real, right now? That's pretty <laughs> impressive. That's we're official. A, we're a very real uh, broadcast now, so I'm sure it feels just like Fox Sports for you. But uh, Smith and Devereaux Wines, um, got to give a shout out to Steve Smith. He's a member. He's the owner of Smith and Devereaux. Uh, he helped me realize that. Uh, about 100% of my wines that I consumed at home were from Costco. About 50% of them had the brand Kirkland uh, printed on the front. And and I didn't really know what I was missing out on. I didn't. I, I don't have the most refined taste, but uh, Smith & Devereaux Wines has helped me kind of realize that, you know what, small batch is, is probably a better route for me to go. And now I'm kind of impressing uh, friends talking about it. So, uh, Steve, Shout out. Thanks for, for the wine. Um, we'll get you some for the next major. How's that sound? We'll get, get that sent over to you, PJ, so that you can. Hey, I mean, I'm, I'm, not a, I'm not a wine drinker, but uh, I'm surrounded by people in my family who love wine. My girlfriend's a big uh, fan of wine. My mom loves wine. My sister's a big fan of wine. So uh, I'm sure uh, the women in my life will appreciate that. I'm not sure if I will have any, but uh, I'm sure <laughs> <You'll>, <laughs> the ladies will. So That's it. It, it pays off. It does. Um, all right. So 2006, tell us your, your lead in. Like what, uh, y- y- this is where you shine, man, is remembering all the obscure <laughs> stuff from these things. Um, what would you need to know about before watching this, this YouTube or this Sunday at, uh, at Wingfoot? Uh, I think the biggest thing is that, you know, Phil Mickelson's coming into the 2006 U.S. Open 
and he's just won the last two major championships. Uh, he won the 2005 PGA Championship at Baltusrol, and he won the 2006 Masters. And uh, now he's trying to become the first person since Tiger Woods in 2000 to win three majors in a row. And, um, you know, although he's, you know, doing it in two different calendar years, he's still trying to win three majors in a row. And he, for 71 holes, it really looked like he was going to pull it off. Um, He hit it terribly off the tee all week. Uh, On Sunday, you'll see if you watch the broadcast that he hit two or 14 fairways, which is just, just, I mean, mind boggling the fact that he was able to, play as well as he did all day um and to not find a fairway is just unbelievable i mean the fact that he was hitting it in you know ankle high rough calf high rough all day long and was making these unbelievable pars and i mean pars out of i'm sure we'll get to later but literally out of a garbage can i mean it, it was unbelievable and that's why you know people love phil that's why he's filled the thrill is that he does these things that nobody else does he hits shots and he tries to you know pull off these miracle you know shots from parking lots that you know one out of a hundred times it's going to work out but you know the one time it does people go crazy and he looks like a genius and you know, that's not how you win U.S. Opens. And we'll talk about the broadcast and how Johnny Miller says that more than once, that this is not, you know, he might be crazy, but this is not how you win U.S. Opens. But, hey, uh, for 71 holes, it looked like Phil Mickelson was going to win the U.S. Open playing the, you know, the style and the way that he knows how to play golf. It really, it really looked like he was going to pull it off. Yeah, Miller fillets him all day. Like Miller, Johnny was throwing a hundred on the radar during the broadcast. <laughs> I mean, he was he was shining. It was uh, that day, it, and it was. Uh, I mean, he's a national treasure because, like, I, I I can't even remember. This is what's funny about uh, like I didn't like Johnny Miller. You know, when I was a kid or whatever, maybe it was because I was too too much of a uh, golf dweeb to to realize it. But like for a telecast for a fan, he's in, he was incredible. His insight, oh, he's great. Like, he's wonderful. He's great. I mean, he, you know, and people give him, people give him a little bit of crap because he always references the 73 U.S. Open in Oakmont. And, and for those who don't know that, he shot 63 in the final round. Oh, everybody knows that. You don't need to preface <laughs> that. Everybody knows that. But, you know, hey, I mean, it was, in my opinion, it's one of the top two or three rounds of golf of all time. I mean, he did it on the toughest golf course in the world. He did it without a yardage book, which a lot of people don't know about that. Um, he left his yardage book at home that morning, uh, went to the golf course in Oakmont doesn't have yardages on the sprinkler, sprinkler heads. So he was pretty much screwed. He did it all of his yardages basically by memory and ended up going out and shooting 63 in the final round of the U S open and winning the golf tournament. Um, that tells you how great of a ball striker he is, but Hey, I mean, you know, the guy won the U S open. He knows what he's talking about. He's a two-time major champion. Uh, he's one of the greatest broadcasters, uh, you know, color commentators of all time, in my opinion. And uh, he can, you know, Johnny earned that right. He can say whatever he wants on there. And uh, he certainly said whatever he wanted to that day in 2006. Yeah. yeah. Well, all-star <laughs> performance from, from Johnny Miller. But um, who else stood out for you in this? Because there was – I don't have the exact – I read something like there was um, – 
a ton of guys within – I think there was like 15 lead changes amongst There five. were 15 lead changes on Sunday, and there were five different players who led on Sunday at one point. Um, so, sorry, else? I didn't mean to cut in there. No, no, you, that's it. That's why you're here, man. That's the stuff <laughs> you know. Like, so who um, – who else? Who stood out to you in, the, in those five? I mean, I we kind of broke it up. Me and you, we broke it up between four guys. Um, I took Phil Mickelson, Kyle Montgomery. You took uh, Jim Furyk and Jeff Ogilvy, obviously, who ended up winning the golf tournament. But uh, I think there's one more guy too that we could have talked about, um, and that was Podrick Harrington. Let's let's talk about Patty. Actually, let's because... talk about him before. Yeah. Yeah, I think before, both of us, we were texting each other all day long, kind of talking about what he was doing all day. Yeah, because the, the other four are, are the clear – in there you have one winner and three chokes, right? Call it what it is. It's a yes. joke. I, from a guy who's choked a ton in tournament golf, like these guys choked. And, and it's, it's wing foot and it's hard and, and, you know, you can say all that, but I, I know what a choke looks like. And, and those three did it in different ways, but they did. Patty um, – not not so much. He 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 did bogey the he last. He did and he didn't. <laughs> he did and he didn't. But but the thing that like I, I know I texted you this, but uh, for the, everybody listening, and uh, thank you for listening. I know this is kind of um, jumping around, but uh, it really is a fun thing to relive. Is when you see these pros that you know, especially that, that you idolize younger, they really struggle on this course. Patty took like I don't know if I, I don't think I'm exaggerating. Three minutes. To hit a few shots, it's unbelievable. And and, and so I, I I know a, f- a few folks over at Wilson who who know Patty very well, and they love Patty, and and they got great you know things to say about the guy. But they did say at this time in 06, like he was a meticulous guy. He still is. He every little detail, you know, he likes to to work through and know about and his equipment and everything. But these Wilson guys are saying that he goes, oh yeah, these were this was the the true pace car days man like he was so slow and deliberate and um it's just amazing you know to see it in a u.s open on a national telecast it's like isn't this the governing body shouldn't they be saying something about this pace of play so i i'm talking to you know the wilson guys and and uh they said this is the peak of his slow play um i also noticed that this is the time and these guys uh, confirmed it for me that he was playing uh, the Wilson Blades 06. I don't remember what model it was. It's pretty funny. He 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 was playing the Wilson Blades, the um, pitching wedge or, or uh, gap wedge through uh, his eight iron, and then he had like not the next step up irons. He had like I think it was the Di sevens, like the big fat game improvement irons for Wilson, and he's playing them around wing foot where you're hitting a ton of them. And so, and so I started noticing, I'm like, okay. This is a great ball striker. This is- <laughs> but yeah, exactly. It's a great ball striker. So it's like, what goes on in this guy's head? And how do those clubs, how do those big fat clubs look behind a ball in, you know, five and a half inch rough is, I just couldn't believe it. it that, that, those are the two things on Patty that I just, I was laughing out loud. Well, we say, I mean, Sunday <laughs> at the US Open, Padraig was he was bogey free for 15 holes. He was the only player in that day who didn't have a bogey on his card. And he he went to the 16th hole. He was four par, four over par. With no now, you know, four later wins you the golf tournament. I mean, all he's got to do is he's got to play 
those last three holes and even he wins. If he plays him one over, he's in a playoff with Jeff Ogilvy. And what does he do? He strikes it on 16. He hits it a foot off the fairway on 17, but he's in the first cut of rough. He's got a perfect lie. And in 18, he pipes it again right down the middle of the fairway. And he makes three bogeys in a row from three great pressure-packed tee shots. And, I mean, that just shows you the kind of pressure that these guys go through, you know, during major championships. I think it explains. And this is a guy who ends up the very next year wins the British Open, uh, defends his title, and then wins the 2008 PGA Championship. He's a, you know, in two the next two years, he wins three major championships. This is a guy who's a Hall of Famer and, and a Ryder Cup captain next year in 2021. And Padraig's a phenomenal, phenomenal player. He you know, growing up, he was one of my favorites. I loved watching him play golf. But, you know, back to the pace of play issue, I mean, it, I remember in 1999, he ended up at the Miracle of Brookline the, in the Ryder Cup. Uh, he ended up playing Marco Mira in singles in, on Sunday. And uh, he ended up winning the match. But the last couple of holes, Padraig was so nervous that he'd have 150, 160 yards from – the middle of the fairway for a second shot and he'd walk. I'm not kidding you, Matt. He would walk up and pace the yardage from his ball to the middle of the green and then walk all the way back from 170 yards out. <laughs> I mean, he was, he was so nervous that he just needed to get rid of the energy and he needed to, you know, go do something. So that's what he did. And my, my parents said that it was, it was unbelievable to watch. They didn't even know what was going on. It was <laughs> my mom who doesn't, you know, she doesn't play golf. She doesn't, you know, know golf that well. And she asked my dad, she's like, is this a normal thing for people to do? And he's like, no, this, I've never seen this before in my life. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, you know, he was one of my favorites growing up too. And I didn't even know this stuff. I, I liked him maybe for other reasons, probably we played the same clubs, but um, it as an, you know, you grow older and, and I, these are the things that actually make me love him more is that this mental battle was going on with this guy and you know, he just, he got it done. He was like, he was so self-aware is what I think of with Padre. I agree. Yeah. I mean, if for me, you know, cause he was Irish, I'm Irish. I, I liked, you know, that fact uh, my dad had the opportunity to work with him for a couple of years. So I, I got to meet him a lot and he was always just so nice and, and such a, such a nice guy with his time and always talked to me and my brother and uh, he was, he was great, but to watch to really, honestly, when he got to 16, it, it looks like he, it's kind of his golf tournament. I mean, he, he's tied for the lead. He, he ends up being one shot back of Mickelson because Mickelson makes birdie on 14. But uh, I mean, it really looks like if Potter can par in it, it might be his tournament to lose. And um it's, it just shows you the, like I said before, it shows you the pressure that these guys face in a major championship and um, especially somebody, his caliber, a hall of fame type of player. I mean, it, it's just, it's, it's tough. And he hits shots that are inexplicable. And on 17 too, he hits, he hits a terrible second shot. He hits an unbelievable, unbelievable pitch shot from the back of the green that you couldn't even see from the blimp. You couldn't even see the ball. It was buried in the rough. And he hits it to three feet, and he and he did he hit one of the worst putts I've ever seen from a professional golfer. And we'll get to Jim Furyk's putt 
that he hit earlier on 15, which is the worst putt I've ever seen hit by a professional golfer. But Potter was pretty close there. He didn't even hit a hole. <laughs> yeah. We've already spent more time on Padraig than I thought we would. No, no, that's not true. I knew we'd spend this much time on Padraig. But I did like his comments. Uh, there was a quote about you know, someone saying that it slipped through his fingers. And he goes, what, what are you talking about? Like, uh, U.S. Opens aren't given to people who double bogey the last hole or bogey the last three. And so he, he yeah. simultaneously, you know, uh, just put uh, Monty and, and Phil on blast while also himself. But he's right, you know. And uh, so let's go, back right. to, let's go back to the, the kind of the, the main group. Uh, do you want to do Furyk next and kind of his demise? <laughs> Yeah, well, you you focused on Furyk, so I'll I'll chime in while you while you talk about him. Yeah, so top ten in the world. Um, I think he finished 05 as number seven in the world and and rising like he was hot. He won the uh, the Varden Trophy in 06, so he was the low stroke average, beating out Tiger Woods. Um, and and he just had a bunch of second place finishes. I think like four or five. He had two victories. So the dude was you know, in a good place. Um, what I noticed with Furick, both, you know, the thing that you mentioned that I knew I needed to remind myself of uh, was the putt on 15. Um, I will say, it, because you told me, look out for that putt on 15, I was watching his putting, you know, on the, the telecast days prior and, and then uh, obviously on Sunday. Um, he was playing great. Like the guy's swing and his his everything looks so solid. Splitting fairways, you know, you you name what side of the fairway of the twenty five yard fairway it looked like he was hitting it, but his putting did look really bad, and, and not just down the stretch, but like he, he just he was backing off putts, and we all know he that that time where he was you know standing over his putts and then would back off it. This was prior to that time, but he was still kind of doing it. Uh, unintentionally so he's backing off a lot of putts and i get it it's u.s open greens are slick um but uh but this putt on 15 man like when it happened i was like okay i I'm, i'm expecting it to happen but like how bad was the putt i was like does it run by eight feet does he just but he takes i think it's a 22 foot putt that he hits 10 feet is it do you think that's fair Oh, I mean, he had he had at least ten feet for par. I mean, he it was yeah, it was like he whiffed he it. it. It was like he whiffed it. Yeah, I, mean, I don't. It, really, think... it was legitimately. It was yeah, unbelievable. He's he's above the hole, or maybe it's more of a side hill break. But he he didn't get it halfway there, and it was like, okay, I I think I know what. The, I mean, that's just nerves, right? As shaky as he looked, he just he looked like down the stretch. You know, starting there, he lost confidence right. in his putter. And, and like you said, too, I mean, his ball striking was phenomenal. And the way we split it up, I mean, I inadvertently, looking at it now, I mean, you had a great ball striker and a guy who was hitting it everywhere and getting it up and down, Jeff Ogilvie. I had a great ball striker for that week in Monty, and I had a guy who was getting it up and down everywhere in Phil. And um, and Furyk, I mean, he was, like you said, he was splitting fairways. He was hitting, you know, he wasn't even taking time with his irons. He was just getting up and hitting them because he felt so comfortable with it. And the greens, he just looked like a different guy. And this is a guy who's been a solid putter really his entire career. I mean, he takes a long time on on the greens. I get that. But he's somebody that's always been reliable. He's always been a grinder. And uh, the U.S. Opens obviously fit his style of play. I mean, 
you know, going back to 2003 when he won. I mean, he played great in 2006. He was right there in 2007. Uh, he was right there in 2012. I mean, this is a guy who's consistently played well in U.S. Opens in his career. And to watch him hit that putt on 15, I mean, it was it was unbelievable. It was almost like he was trying to back off in the middle of his stroke because he wasn't comfortable and he just inadvertently hit it. I mean, it was – and then obviously he ends up missing the, the next putt for par and, you know, on a, on a hole and in a whole location where it was – it was really, you know, it was right on that right side. It was only like six, six paces off uh, the right edge of the green there. I mean, it looked like he was par on that hole, middle of the green and par, you take and run to 16T. And uh, he looked good there for a second. And then once he hit that putt, I mean, it was like he was, his head was just spinning. You could tell even, even how he was able to kind of hang in there uh, the next couple holes and, and make pars on 16 and 17, that, that bogey on 15 killed him. And then he hits a great bunker shot on 18. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, and, and that's where I'll end it is that 18th hole, Jim Furyk has a five foot putt to shoot plus five. And, you know, they didn't know at the time, but plus five wins them, you know, the opener gets them into a playoff, uh, Probably wins it though if if Jeff Ogilvy glances at a scoreboard, maybe it's a different story. Um, but uh, yeah, and then that stroke was you know, abysmal as well. It just looked like he whiffed it and and uh, doesn't hit the hole. Yeah, which again, it's just like that's major championship pressure. It can't be anything else from such a solid competitor like him. So um, yeah, pretty pretty interesting to like. And I'm glad you know we split it up this way. You, you if you're really intently watching one specific golfer you know through through this stuff it, it's really cool you start seeing stuff that maybe you wouldn't uh, notice otherwise so give us um well back to your side so phil or monty um i mean monty, i'll go with monty there's a lot there so, and there's a lot there historically as well i mean monty's a guy who obviously being from scotland and playing on as many Ryder Cup teams as he did for Europe. I mean, he was somebody that was always kind of outcasted by the American fans and, um, you know, maybe rightly so a little bit. I mean, always kind of surly with the media and surly with the fans. And But even that day watching the broadcast, it was like the New York fans were pulling for Monty too. I mean, they were – it was really – it was Phil number one and Monty – number two in their eyes. They, if Phil wasn't going to win, they wanted Colin Montgomery to, to pull away and, and win his first major championship. And, I mean, going into that week, I mean, Monty was 0-57 in majors in his career, and he was 0-99 in America. And this is a guy who ends up, you know, for the rest of his career, never won a major championship, and he never won in the United States. And this was one of his best chances to do it. And... <sighs> He, I mean, we could start anywhere with Monty, but um, I think one of the stats that kind of was glaring was that he didn't have any three putts that entire week until the last six holes on Sunday, and he had two. And that was coming on uh, 14 and 18. And 14, he was in the left rough. We can start on 14. It was a tough pin again. And he was in the left rough, had a terrible lie, hit this unbelievable shot to a front right pin to about 20 feet above, above, the, uh, above the hole and hits just an abysmal first putt. Has about six feet left for, for, bo- or for par 
and uh, doesn't hit the hole. And so now you're thinking, okay, he's, he's feeling the pressure. He's choking. He hits a great shot on 15. Um, he actually, his tee shot went through the fairway. It's a great shot. Gets the ball all the way back to about pin high. Um, actually past pin high, has about 10 feet for birdie, misses it. 16 hits another phenomenal shot on a hole that people are struggling on. Uh, hits it to about 12 feet, misses that putt. So now you're thinking, okay, he's the putter's just letting him down like it has in his entire career. I mean, his, his game is ball striking, and his putting has never been really up to par. And uh, on the 17th hole, he hits a terrible tee shot. He gets the ball on the front of the green and makes a 75-footer for birdie. And on the broadcast, when he makes the bomb, Johnny Miller says it looks like he has tears in his eyes. It looks like he's about to cry. He looks so emotional. And he, and he, he really does. His face, he, he gets so red, and he's looking up at the skies and at the heavens, and I think he's thinking, I, I honestly believe he was probably thinking in his head, I just won the U.S. Open. That putt won me the U.S. Open. And he gets up on 18, the 72nd hole, and he. this is a guy who can only hit, work the ball left to right. He cannot hit a draw to save his life. And this hole calls for a huge 10, 15-yard draw off the tee, big dog leg left. And he hits the most perfect tee shot you can ever drop. I mean, dead straight, down the middle, 310. I mean, he just piped it. I mean, it was perfect. Picks up the tee. And I think at that moment, I think everybody watched the broadcast. Me watching it last night, knowing the outcome was like, okay, how can he not win this golf tournament? He's one of the greatest iron players to ever play the game. This is a pin that's in the front right. Like Johnny Miller was saying all day on the broadcast that it was a funnel. If you get the green, if you get the ball to land about 20 feet left of the pin, the ball was going to funnel down to the hole. So Monty gets up there, and I think what killed him, honestly, was his playing partner, Vijay Singh, was out of the tournament, and Doug hooked a tee shot pretty similar to where Phil Mickelson about 20 minutes later will end up on 18. And Vijay's taking relief. Uh, he's got about a 10, 15-minute ruling that's going on, and Vijay's away. And so Monty's standing in the middle of the fairway with his caddy just waiting on Vijay to play his second shot. And this entire time, Colin has already pulled his club, which, in my opinion, is a terrible thing to do. It's like a free-throw shooter going, getting fouled and going to the line as everybody else on the court is just getting to the blocks at the key. Um, you know, it's like he's the first one to go, even though he's got nowhere to – be. I mean, he's got to wait on VJ to play his second shot. And so VJ plays. And so now it's Monty's turn. And for whatever reason, and I never really have heard Colin explain it well when he's been asked a question, but holding a six iron for 10 minutes, he gives it to his caddy and pulls out seven iron. And so, and you hear Johnny Miller on the broadcast again, he picks up on it and says, why would you pull a club and have it in your hand for 10 minutes? And now you're going to switch clubs at the last second. He goes, that makes no sense. He goes, why would you second guess yourself at the last possible minute? And that's what Colin does. He gets up to the ball, has 175 yards, middle of the green. All you got to do, 
par, as we know now, you par the last hole, you win the U.S. Open. And he hits this shot that just hits it fat and high and right. And this right off the face, you can hear the boom mic picks up. What kind of shot was that? He says it as soon as he hits it. And, I mean, he hits it in the only spot that you have no possible chance of getting up and down. And he hits a terrible – he hits a very – you know, he's a very tough third shot. Hits it terrible. Hits it to 60 feet and three putts. And he ends up losing the golf tournament by a shot. Yeah, that that one is actually more difficult to watch than Phil. (laughs) Phil Phil lets him off the hook for sure. People forget – about how close Colin really Colin Montgomery the whole week he played better than everybody yeah and the he was the only guy under par after two rounds um, he didn't play well on on Saturday he ended up uh, he ended up shooting 75 but he came back with such a spectacular round he was one under through 17 holes on Sunday and to finish the round like that to finish the tournament and you know he never had another chance in his career to win a major championship. And, you know, I, yeah. I don't know. I mean, obviously, like we talked about, I mean, he choked. He definitely did. I mean, he did the hard part, right? He got the ball in the middle of the fairway. I mean, all you got to do there is make par. And that's the toughest thing about the 18th hole wing foot is the tee shot. If you can get the ball in the fairway, it gives you – it kind of opens up and you have – it plays fairly easy up to that point. And he, he did the hard part and then he did the easy part he played it like a dog. I, I read a, a interview of his from like 10 years ago um, asking about it. And he said, yeah, if there's one shot in my whole career, I could replay again. It's that seven iron in the fairway. And someone asked him, um, you know, would you have hit the six? And he says, again, if I had one shot, I could replay again. It would be the seven iron from the fairway. So mm. he obviously feels strongly that he, he wanted to hit seven iron. It just, it, it's, um, I, I love, this is actually why I watch pro golf. I don't watch pro golf on uh, Thursday, Friday. Maybe I'll watch it on Saturday. I watch Sunday because I, I feel like you, when you know you need to do something, anyone can do something. You train your body, you train you know, your synapses to do certain things. It, it can happen. But um, to do it when you need it, when you know something is on the line, I'm always just amazed by that and how the guys like Tiger just do it. And, and this is an example of where you don't do it, where, you know, he, he probably thought, you know, adrenaline's pumping. I can hit the seven iron to the 20 feet left of the pin and, uh, and walk away with this. But he, his swing, it's, a, it's not a good swing. He just, his body stops on him, you know, and, and that's his mind getting in his way. And it's just, it's fascinating to me. It's just so crazy. But I, I do agree with you. Like, it is way more painful his loss i think than than phil's although phil's is pretty bad (laughs) well phil kind of goes in a blades of glory i mean monty was like a slow death watching it happen it was like oh my god i mean he's he's gonna do this he's he's gonna i mean phil it was almost like okay like what's gonna happen next like this is actually kind of fun to watch because i can't believe this guy actually is doing what he's doing with Monty, it's like he did the hard part. You're in the middle of the fairway. Like all you got to do is get it around the green, and and you're probably going to win the next tournament. I mean, all you get, yeah. If you make bogey, like you said, who knows what Ogilvy does? I mean, if yeah. he sees that Monty's in it, if he sees him at four, not Jeff Ogilvy is not winning the golf tournament. 
and there's no doubt about that. He's not birdieing the 72nd hole. And, I mean, it was just – it was unbelievable. And, and Johnny Miller had another great call. I mean, when Monty was over his 10-footer for bogey, it was pretty funny. He kind of, you know, called the future a little bit and said, who knows what Phil might do since he's hit two fairways all day long. And that was over Monty, his bogey putt on 18. And Johnny was kind of referencing, hey, like, you know, Monty's got to take this seriously. Because at that moment, it looked like four over par was going to be in a tie. It wasn't going to win the golf tournament. And so Johnny was kind of like, he's still got to take this seriously because you never know. Phil could, you know, do what he ended up doing and, and make a mess of 18. So five over might get you in a playoff. Of course, Monty misses the putt, and Miller was right. You know who was front and center for Phil's meltdown that I noticed on the, uh, the telecast, the replay? Mike Davis. Yeah, Mike Davis, the current CEO of the USGA. I thought that was <laughs> kind of funny. I just I don't know why it made me laugh, but he's he's ushering people out of the way so you know Phil can make his next poor decision. And uh, what do you think about? Okay, everyone regards Bones as. Well, let's talk about let's talk about Ogilvy first. Okay, and then I want to come back to Bones because I, I feel okay. like like tackle your guy or something, right? <laughs> I mean, run, the probability there's such. You know, uh, technicians. I have some notes two. on that. Okay, I have All some right. notes on that. But let's talk to let's talk about Ogilvy first. All right, on a positive note. On a positive note, we'll talk about Jeff Ogilvy. Um, so, if you're listening to our podcast, you're probably fans of uh, the Friday podcast. And Andy Johnson does awesome uh, work with another honorary member. Um, Andy Johnson does some awesome work with Jeff Ogilvy. And uh, and I think, you know, when you assigned me Jeff it gave me a little bit of opportunity to kind of know the guy's career a little bit more. Cause honestly, I just, I like his comments about golf, um, but never was really, you know, the biggest fan of, of his play. Although, um, you know, fascinating career, just kind of uh, going into 06, he was top 50 in the world and, and rising. So he was definitely trending the right direction. He wins the WGC Accenture uh, match play and finished top 20 in, I think, the three prior majors. So the guy was um, kind of a mini Brooks. He, he was becoming kind of a big game hunter. It seemed like he played the best at the hardest places and in, in the toughest conditions, um, which is when you hear him talk about, you know, what he thinks of golf course architecture it makes total sense that, that it aligns. Um, and I thought what was interesting, and I had to dig a little deeper to find out his front nine, but – he birdies five and six. And uh, after talking to the members at Wingfoot this week, it, it was interesting to hear some comments about they think the, the stretch of five, six, and seven. Well, first off, there's no birdie holes. They're like, <laughs> that's not really a thing at Wingfoot. But, um, you know, six is short. Seven is the shortest part three. And five can be uh, attainable. So it, it was cool that he birdied five and six. And then he went on to bogey eight and nine. So he was, he was kind of puttering, you know, he wasn't hitting, he was hitting fairways, I think, but he wasn't hitting his irons really well. And he, he, you know, I 13 stood out to me because he um, short sides himself in that bunker that Phil did as well. And kind of looks like he has no options and the dude almost holds it. You know, he hits, he hits the pin. It drops right in front of that front edge. Uh, you, you thought he made it. And so did he, um, so he missed short side there. Then he missed his short side on 14 and did not get it up and down. Um, 
and I think 14, he had like a gap wedge. He was like 120 yards out. So it, well, it seemed like to me every time they cut to him, he was missing greens and not getting up and down. Am I wrong? Yes, there was there was one other on that back nine that that's true too. Yeah, and it's like, well, wait, I didn't see any birdies. How's this guy still in this tournament? Exactly. Uh, yeah. So his, you know, it kind of um, comes to fruition, I suppose, with uh, hitting it in a divot on eighteen. That you know, I again back to the mental side of golf. I thought this was really awesome to see that you know. Uh, Miller was practically putting him, you know, out for the count that he's just not going to recover from being in the front side of a, a sandy green divot. And um, he, he made a great swing on it. A little uphill lie. It looked like he caught it a little spinny maybe and um, comes up short. And I just, I think what was lost on me from my original recollection about him winning and rewatching it uh, now is the up and down he makes on 18 is unreal. Like the, mm-hmm. the false front, which I know they've increased the false front with the restoration and it looks even bigger than it does in 06. But like the camera is actually a really cool angle looking from behind him up at that green. He's got an uphill lie. He's got this ridiculous false front to carry. And he hits this little perfect soft hand spinner. And I just thought to myself, I, I could never hit that shot, right? With the U.S. Open on the line, how do you calm your nerves to do such a feel shot? And, and, and that's what I think is the difference between winners and losers and, you know, our comments about joking. It's just fascinating that he did that. And so for people that think like, oh, Phil, you know, choked and loses it, Monty, all those stories, right. that chip right there showed me that no you win tournaments like this and and he certainly won it by hitting that shot no he did i mean he he showed some guts there i mean his short game um his short game is phenomenal obviously that day it was unbelievable and um you know for him to to not mope and to not feel like why me after hitting a great tee shot and ending up being in the sandfield divot on 18 um and actually ended up hitting a great second shot. It really off the face, and, and you could tell when he hit it, he felt like he hit a perfect golf shot. He really did. I mean, if the false front's not there, it's, it's probably going to end up being 10, 12 feet from the hole. Um, but like you said, it comes back down the hill. He's got a 40-yard pitch shot, and in that circumstance, that kind of golf shot, you know, I, I don't care if you're playing, you know, if it's me and you and we're playing on a Saturday afternoon for five bucks. And the fact that he was able to hit it to four feet, make the putt, I mean, that shows that he, he won the golf tournament right there. He really did. Yeah. Yeah. That's the, the, the other last comment on, on him. And I think this is, we can all relate to who we're playing with can make a big difference, but he's playing with Ian Poulter dressed head to toe in, in pink. Unbelievable. Um, um, and, his, and, his wardrobe was very interesting. <laughs> And his name's not on the leaderboard, so I, I, I'm just assuming he had a, a tough day. I didn't really follow his round because they didn't show many shots. But uh, his demeanor out there, like he was, he had Jeff laughing, like he was doing goofy stuff. And and you know, Jeff is kind of giggling a little bit, and and even Jeff tells this story now about um, sitting in the scores 
tent or the scores, uh, whatever you want to call it, the hut, <laughs> um, afterwards doing the cards and, and Jeff saying, you know, Hey, I, I, I thought I, I need a birdie on 18, but Hey, that was a pretty good up and down I had. And, you know, finishing second in a, in a major is not too bad, huh, Ian? And Ian is watching the telecast and turn and, and sees where Phil puts it off the tee. And, uh, he, he looks at him and goes, this could be, <laughs> this could turn out well for you. Uh, <laughs> And, and, and there's a couple, even the telecast picks up on kind of their interaction together. So I think it's, you know, let's use Monty as the foil there. Like Monty playing with VJ, who everyone says is difficult uh, to, to play with. Um, and, and, uh, and then that, that well, ruling, Monty's very difficult to play with as well. well okay. Yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. So but it's I, probably a comfortable pairing for the two of them. I will just say in that respect because they don't talk to each other. That's very true. That's very true. But in a way, I think it is that comfortable pairing of Poulter that, you know, just probably let Jeff, Jeff relax and hit some golf shots. And then in a major, I think that's pretty rare and tough to get to. But um, anyways, I, I know that's the little things that I think are, are uh, important when, when you're going to win something like this. No, I agree. I mean, you think back to two, Right now, I think back to 2018 when Justin Thomas and uh, Jordan Spieth were paired together in the or in the round of the Masters, and Jordan Spieth ends up shooting 64, and he's playing with one of his best friends and Justin Thomas. And I think you know it's probably the same kind of thing. Just kind of get out of get out of their way, try to keep them loose as much as possible, and and you don't want them. They know where they stand, so you don't want them to you know be constantly reminding you don't want them to be constantly reminding you of, you know, how you're doing, just kind of let me play golf. And I think I'm sure, you know, that's what it sounds like Ian was doing once he realized he was out of it. He wasn't going to be able to contend anymore. So what, what, uh, what about, what else about Phil? So that's our, that's our winner. That's our 2006 U S open winner, but any other insights from Phil's? I mean, nothing really happened, right? So I I think we can just end it right here. That's right. That was it. I mean, Jeff Ogilvie won the won the 2006 USO. No, but I mean, I think we'll – obviously, I wanted to say Phil for last because, you know, even though Ogilvie ended up winning, I think this is what Phil Mickelson ended up doing on the 72nd hole of the US Open. But, I mean, he – Phil going into the final round had the – was sharing the lead with Kenneth Ferry. Uh, who was an Englishman, journeyman Englishman, and Kenneth, you know, kind of struggled all day. Actually didn't play that badly. Ended up, um, he ended up at seven over for the tournament. He actually ended up, or I'm sorry, he, he was at eight over, but still tied for six. I mean, played good golf and, uh, and hung in there. But, um, <laughs> I mean, where do we start with Phil? I don't know. But, you know, I, th- I guess we can start, you know, maybe on 13. That Phil hit an unbelievable shot on 11. Um, gave himself about six feet birdie, made it, goes to three over, and that's how they start the broadcast, uh, the review broadcast on YouTube. And it's kind of like, okay, he's, he's got it's the a big roar. He, big New York roar. He's feeling good. He's, he's given his, his mini fist pumps that, you know, when he does, he looks like he's out of breath back then because he was so over. He's like – he's kind of like heavily breathing, and he just looks terrible. But anyway, so – he goes to 13 and like you said i think that 13 was a huge huge hole for many reasons um he hits it in the bunker that you talked about how full he hit it in and to that pin back left it's a, he was dead i mean he 
the only way you're going to get that ball close, or the only way you're going to make par is if you do what Jeff O'Wolvey did and hit the pin and it knocks it to six inches, or you're going to hit it to, you know, 10 to 12 feet and you're, you you got to make a par, you got to make a putt to make par. And Phil hit an unbelievable golf shot. He hit it to eight feet. I mean, he was the closest out of that bunker all day and hit a great putt. And I think off the face too, he felt like he made that one. And the thing just dove at the last second and caught the lip and, and went out. And, you know, you could tell by the groan and just the way that Mickelson reacted to that putt that, you know, they, they thought he made that one. But he comes back to typical fashion and birdies the 14th. So he's back to three over. He's got a one-shot lead over Colin Montgomery. And Jeff Olvin, he's looking like, you know, th- this is his tournament. And he ends up, you know, bogeying 16. He kind of really – Gets unlucky, hits it kind of in the face of the bunker. It's fried egg, uh, gives himself about 12 feet for par, misses the putt. You know, up to that point, I mean, Phil's hit two fairways all day, decides to pull driver. And um, I should actually reference, too, is that something that's unbelievable is that Phil did not birdie a par five all week. Um, he ended up, actually, on Sunday, he played the par fives one over earlier in the round. On the front nine, um, on number five, the first par five of the day, Phil made bogey. He took a three-wood out of the left rough uh, from a terrible lie and moved it about two feet in front of him and ended up taking six from there. And then didn't uh, he ended up not birding the par five 12th on the back nine, made par. So that entire week, Phil played the par fives without a birdie. And I think that's something that he's got to look back on. And to fast forward into, you know, start where I left off on 17 hits just a atrocious tee shot that ends up in a garbage can, a legitimate garbage can and (laughs) takes relief from the garbage can hits just an incredible punch four iron second shot cut four iron that runs up and trundles onto the green and he two putts for par. And I'm sure he's thinking this is mine. You know, Jeff Ogilvie just parred 18. He's in at five over. You know, it doesn't matter where I'm hitting the ball off the tee. My iron game, my short game is unbelievable. I'm making putts. This is mine. I'm, I'm not going to lose this golf tournament. And everybody criticizes the tee shot that he hit, and I'm sure you'll criticize it too. And I have no problem with him hitting driver off the 18. I really don't. Um, I think in his mind, I make four, I win the golf tournament. I've been doing this all day. What's going to change? And in golf, you know, one swing can make all the difference. You could hit driver all day and hit it terrible. And, you know, that last tee shot you hit, you hit it 310 down the middle. And maybe that's what he was thinking in his head was, hey, you know, even though I've been hitting it bad all day, this might be the one that I can get out there. And if I get it to, you know, that 145, 160-yard range, tournament's over and it's my ball game and obviously it's a terrible terrible tee shot 50 yards right or 50 yards left sorry and kind of what he did on 17 my problem is what he tried to do with the second shot um i have no idea why he tried to get the ball near the green he had no chance no opportunity um for bail there really i mean he he had to chip out. And in my opinion, Seven Ballesteros is the best wedge player to ever live. 
Phil Mickelson's number two. And and I don't even blame Bones in this position because in that position, I just live it out because he's going to look at you and be like, why are you giving your opinion? Just back off and, and let me do my thing. And Phil, it's all on Phil. And he's got to be thinking, let me pitch out to 140 yards. Let me hit a nine iron pitching wedge onto the green. Give myself a 15, 20-footer at par. If I make it, great, I win the U.S. Open. If not, probably going to win tomorrow. Uh, and that's how he had to think about it. And obviously, you know, he's filled the thrill. He doesn't think that way. He doesn't chip out. He tries these shots that are just ridiculous. And Roger Malpe is saying, I, I honestly don't know what he's going to do with the shot. They're kind of, you know, doing crowd control. And you reference Mike Davis and everybody's, you know, trying to step back. And I don't know what he's going to do, but it's going to be fun to watch kind of thing. And, you know, he hits in front of him, hits a tree and knocks it straight down. His third shot, he actually hits a hell of a third shot to get it around the green, but it ends up plugging greenside bunker left side of the green and has no shot, hits it across the green and, you know, ends up not chipping in for bogey and, and makes double bogey and gives the championship to Jeff Ogilvy. Um, I'm sure you have some opinions and thoughts on that, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> I was The one thing I thought about was where he missed his second shot. So – not the drive. The second shot obviously rambles into the tree, but then the third, he hits it up into that bunker with the plugged lie. Did do you think he was trying to hit that that first one into that that same hard cut into the bunker, thinking that he has a better chance of getting it up and down out of the bunker? I mean, this is all hypothetical, obviously. I don't think Phil's ever really commented on it. At least I couldn't find if he did. Um, but you know. It, if that's not a plugged lie, Phil Mickelson with a lot of that green to work with yeah. out of bunker, you, you probably like him from there, right? Right. No, I agree. I think that's probably what he was trying to do. He probably, and like you said, I, I haven't been able to find anything on his comments really post round post tournament since then. And you're right. I think he was trying, I think he was looking at one of the green side or at the green side bunker. He was trying to get it, um, to where he hit his third shot ended up and he ended up catching a tree and who knows, maybe he did have a gap. I mean, in his mind, he, you know, and maybe that's why bones didn't say anything was like, Hey, I've seen him hit this shot a million times. So I'm not going to say anything because I know we can pull it off. Maybe he felt like if I do intervene and I do say something, it's going to throw him off even more. And he's going to start second guessing himself because once they move the crowd, if you watch, he hits the ball pretty quickly. He doesn't really take a lot of time. He kind of knows what he's doing. So yeah. it makes me think he, he probably saw a shot there, and Bones probably did too. You know, I mean, Phil thinks differently than pretty much anybody else in the game. And so he, he might have thought, I kind of see a gap, and I, and I think I can get it in that greenside bunker. And like you said, I like my chances getting up and down there. And – What's interesting, too, is what I forgot to talk about. On the tee shot, I think he kind of got screwed. He, people talk about, oh, he got such a great break, he hit the hospitality tent. If the hospitality tent is not there, he's on another hole, and he's got a perfect, perfect line to the 18th green. Uh, I, he's got no 20, trees to deal with. In 2020, he won't have that issue. So Phil, Phil will be the U.S. Open champ. Exactly. In 2020, you won't have that issue. But <laughs> he, if you look at an aerial view, there's a hole that runs parallel to the 18th hole at Wingfoot. And 
if he hits it in that fairway, he wins the golf tournament. And I think, I think the merchandise tent screwed him. I really do. <laughs> do you think, <laughs> which is kind of funny to say, because <laughs> think so, about how far offline you have to hit that tee shot. But, but yeah, honestly, exactly. I think it is. Is it? <laughs> Cause like we've seen <laughs> Phil in us opens, you know, hit moving balls and use rules to his quote unquote advantage. Um, which is, can we talk about that for one quick second, which is absurd because all you have to do, if you know the rules of golf, if you play golf, you take an unplayable from there. You can take an unplayable from anywhere. If he was really using the rules of the rules to his advantage, he would have taken an unplayable and hit the shot again. Yeah. It's as simple as that. <laughs> he So uh, I, what did cross my mind was that he might've been aiming for the merch tent in order to actually hit it and stay on it. So his ball hits it, kicks closer to 18 fairway or under the trees and he tries to hit the miraculous shot. I'm curious where his drop would have been if he would have stayed up in the merch tent. Maybe he didn't miss it far enough to the That's interesting. To the left. <laughs> Maybe he didn't miss it far enough is my point. But anyways. Yeah, was, I, I don't know where his – if his ball stayed there, that would have been interesting to see where he would have been able to drop. Right. Because I, I – I, I, I honestly don't know where his relief would have been. <laughs> That'll be homework for me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a peek at the 2006 aerial to see if I can figure that out. Um, but no, man, this is – it was fun to relive. I think anybody that's still listening, check out the 06 U.S. Open. It will get you pumped for the carnage at Wingfoot. Like there's no, no way it doesn't. Um, I don't think this type of golf is like week in and week out what I want to see, but it is so fun that it happens once a year that these guys really get put to this kind of test. And uh, Peter, thanks for, for joining us, man. Thanks for giving us the, the insights and your take on, on these guys in 06 and in, in 20. Um, we'll, we'll see who owes who a bottle of Smith and Devereaux <laughs> wine uh, with our picks. You have JT. I got John Rahm. Uh, we'll see what happens. No problem. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Matt. I appreciate it. Uh, yeah, it's fun to relive these past tournaments. I think it's it's a cool thing that we've done the last couple of times. And, um, you know, it'll be fun to watch how it all unfolds next week. It's it's one of those tournaments that, you know, everybody thinks back about the loser. They don't think about the winner. And I think hopefully we were able to shine some light on Jeff Ogilvy and, and you know, kind of tell people his story maybe a little bit and how he, you know, he, even though, a lot of stuff happened around him and there was a lot of carnage. He, he was able to, you know, hit the shots when he needed to and win the golf tournament. He rose above and, uh, don't forget. Train Kenneth wreck. Ferry. Really? We, did, we didn't really, or Kenneth Ferry. We forgot. I, I just wanted to give one quick shout out to the wardrobe of Kenneth Ferry. It was, uh, head to toe off white, um, which was big in the, in the zeros, as we remember from our masters, uh, relives. Uh, he had the white belt rocking with the white hat and the white shoes, um, kind of a white khaki-ish pant. But but what sealed it all together was the the Superman buckle, the Superman yes. buckle, and and the thing that you only got a glance of on the telecast because obviously very uh, clean cut broadcast from NBC and the USGA. Uh, but he did have a tribal tat. He had a tribal tat on his right bicep. Uh, so you know you don't see many 
uh, U.S. Open champions raising the trophy with a with a tribal tent, you know, hanging out their sleeve. But that's what we would have had with Kenneth Ferry. Hopefully, we uh, we have somebody with a tribal tent lifted in 2020. We'll see. We'll see. I, I can't think of many guys who do, but <laughs> but J, JT does have a few tats, so we'll see if okay if he if he's able to pull it off. <laughs> All right, awesome. PJ, thanks again, man. Great catching up with you. Uh, we'll talk to you soon for the Masters. Thanks, Matt. Yeah, yeah. Take care. This episode was brought to you by Half Day CBD. Personally, I started using Half Day CBD products a little more than a year ago to assist in three key areas. I use the Half Day oils as part of my bedtime ritual. I like to use the Half Day topical relief creams for my knees, which always start to ache around this time of the golf season. And I use the Half Day CBD gummies as a way to curb some of my first tee jitters before an especially nervy match or tournament. Using the link in our show notes, you can now check out their full line of hemp-derived CBD products. And with the promo code NEWCLUB15, you'll receive an additional 15% off your first order. You'll also see some of the Half Day staffers at our upcoming tournaments and events for the second half of the golf season. So if you're interested in the use of CBD products or just curious about the benefits for yourself, I encourage you to say hello and check them out.